turn in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. That way you get to hear the Word of God and read it as well has double the impact as a result. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible that's handed to you this morning a a gift from the Lord to you. Luke's account of the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria, and so all went to be registered, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in that the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this timeless story, the importance of and the impact of reaching all the way into this room today. And we thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to examine your account, the account of the Holy Spirit concerning the birth of your Son, and the reasons why he was born into this world. And Lord, we pray that in this great land that we live in, this country, that the United States, where the true message of Christmas is becoming more and more lost to more and more people, we pray, Lord, that this morning, each one that sits here today that doesn't yet know you, that doesn't yet understand Christmas and what's the big deal about it and all of these things and why is it so important to Christians and why should it be so important to them that you would open up this simple message, Lord, in this account and you would speak to each one and bring them, Lord, into a relationship with you today as a result of the ministry of your Holy Spirit through your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Luke's account of the birth of Jesus is very, very simple, and it's very, very beautiful. There is a great beauty to simplicity. And this 
account of Luke by the Holy Spirit, it divides itself into three segments. Verses 1 through 7 speak to us of Jesus' birth. And then verses 8 through 14, the heavenly announcement, the birth announcement associated with Jesus' birth. And then finally in verses 15 through 20, the reaction to that announcement. First, we want to look at the account of Jesus' birth in verses 1 through 7. It's interesting in verses 1 and 2 as we uh, examine the account, we realize concerning the birth of Jesus that God had a problem, and that problem is laid out for us in those uh, opening two verses. Mary was pregnant with Jesus as a result of a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Joseph has taken Mary to be his betrothed wife under the instruction uh, of the angel, and so Uh, She is his wife now, even though he did not physically come to know her in a sexual way until after the birth of Jesus. God's problem was this. Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth, which is way up in the northern part of Israel, the Galilee region of Israel. And the Old Testament scriptures had declared that when the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would be born into the world, that he would be born into the world in the city of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem involved a journey of at least 90 miles uh, if we assume that they bypassed the region of uh, Samaria And a journey of 90 miles in those days over that particular terrain would have uh, required about three days in order to accomplish that journey. So how does God get a woman who is nine months pregnant, no matter how saintly or how godly she might be, to take a 90-mile journey on foot or on the back of a donkey in order that Jesus might be born as prophesied in the city of Bethlehem. Well, that is a problem. Those of you who've been nine months pregnant, you understand that's a problem. Those of you who've been married to someone who's ever been nine months pregnant, you understand that that's a problem. Looks like a lose-lose for God, and there's nothing he can do that can be right. How God solved the problem is interesting. God knew that at that time... There would be a Roman emperor by the name of Caesar Augustus who would issue a decree just at that time commanding all of the Roman world to go to the city of their birth in order to be registered for further taxation uh, by the Roman Empire. So they weren't being sent to their hometowns in order to be registered for lower taxes, but for higher taxes It's the same old story in the world. So when Caesar Augustus, being the Roman uh, Caesar, when he made a decree, there were no ifs, ands, or buts about the decree. It didn't matter whether you were nine months pregnant or not pregnant at all or married to someone nine months pregnant or not married to someone who was nine months pregnant. His decree was... The law, and you obeyed it, no matter what it required in order to obey it. And because both Mary and Joseph were descendants of King David, they had to go to the city of David, that is Bethlehem, in order to be registered. And so at the decree of Caesar Augustus, off to Bethlehem, they went. And, of course, the timing of all of it was absolutely perfect. If Caesar Augustus's decree had gone out a month too early, then Mary would have gone to Bethlehem with Joseph, been registered, returned to Nazareth, and Messiah would have been born in Nazareth, which would have been a violation of the Scriptures. If the decree had been a month too late, then Jesus would have been born in Nazareth also, again, instead of Bethlehem. But nothing's too difficult for the Lord. He knew that this timing would be absolutely perfect. There's no surprises for him as it relates to history. Now, it's fascinating, I think, in this whole account of the birth of Jesus to 
uh, know a little bit about the origin of Caesar Augustus's name. And it's very amusing to me in some respects as it relates to uh, all of this. His real name was Octavius, and he was the first Roman emperor. His last name was not Augustus. That was his title and how he came to... Um, Receive the title of Augustus as an interesting one. When he became uh, the Roman Caesar, he called on the Roman Senate to come up with a name that was a, a title that was worthy of him and what he considered to be his unique um, abilities and, and uh, skill set and all. And so they tried to come up with a name that would be big enough for this great Caesar Octavius. So they floated out the idea to him of dictator. He didn't like that at all. Seemed too temporary in his mind. They floated out the idea of king, but that was too ordinary. I mean, there were so many other kings in the world. Uh, that couldn't encapsulate his greatness and his mind sufficiently. And so finally they came up with the term Augustus. And Augustus carries with it the idea of the gods. So when they said, how about if we call you Caesar Augustus, Caesar of the gods, numbered among the gods was the idea. And he kind of liked that. And so he caused the name to stick, and that's how Caesar of the gods came to receive his name. Well, uh, while Caesar of the gods issued his decree out of this great sense of self-importance that he had, and in order to kind of flex his muscles as the ruler over the world-ruling empire at the time, quietly behind the scenes, really almost uh, unnoticed, God has sovereignly used all of it to forward his plan in human history. Proverbs speaks about the fact that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And nowhere is that more true in history than God's use of Caesar Augustus to accomplish the birth of the Savior in the city that God had prophesied he would be born in, that is the city of Bethlehem. God's providence, God's sovereignty is a fabulous thing, that he rules and he overrules everything whether nationally or internationally or concerning our individual lives, to accomplish his purposes. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing to rest in. Now, the obedience of Joseph and Mary is recorded in verses 4 and 5. Pregnant or not, they make their way to Bethlehem. And we're told in verses 6 and 7, while they were in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. And that because of the size of the crowds in Bethlehem, and probably in all of the different cities, uh, the, because of uh, Caesar Augustus's decree. I mean, imagine if everyone who was ever born in Modesto had to come back to Modesto in order to be registered for taxes. Well, it would absolutely overwhelm uh, any kind of lodging facilities that we would have, the size of the group that would uh, come upon a city, and Bethlehem was no different. It was overwhelmed with the number of people coming into it as a result of the decree, and it left no room, we're told, for Joseph and Mary in the inn. Now, when we think about an inn, we think of maybe Carmel or Pacific Grove, a little bed and breakfast, something with maybe a fireplace in the room, and uh, you come out in the morning and they have this fabulous spread for breakfast and that kind of thing, or we think of a holiday inn or something like that. And, uh, but that's not the, what was the, being described here in terms of an inn. The word for inn in the original language is the word cataluma. And the word cataluma described an enclosure that was used in those days, a shelter that was used. It was indeed called an inn, but it was a, a shelter that was used where both human beings and animals would come into that room and then they would spend the night there in that room, both the animals and the owner of the animals. Now listen, by the time the catalumas are all filled, there's not much left in the city. So when it talks about the fact that there's no room for them in the inn, that means the place is just packed out. There's no room even in the most... 
uh, humble of, uh, of, uh, of shelters. And thus Jesus was probably born in a lean-to attached to an inn or uh, in a cave or in some kind of a stable in the presence of a manger, and a manger is simply a feed trough for animals, it lets us know that he was born in some kind of a place that was intended to be a shelter for animals. And we're told further that he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. In other words, he was bundled up in layers and uh, of clothes cloth and laid in the manger. And so here is Jesus having come from heaven, and he's born into the world, and he is born into the most humblest of physical circumstances. I think one of the reasons that God caused that to happen that way is I don't think on any level anyone in the whole wide world can ever look at Jesus, whether concerning his birth or concerning his life. Uh, concerning his death. Nobody can look at Jesus and say he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and everything was easy for him. He can't understand what's going on in my life. No, from the moment he was born into the world to the moment that he ascended back into the heaven that he came from, everything about his life is something that even those that have it the hardest in life realize This is someone that can relate to me. This is someone who can understand me. Now, let's also notice in verses 8 through 14, uh, Luke's account of heaven's birth announcement concerning Jesus. The circumstances are given to us. The shepherds are out living out in the fields. They're keeping watch over their flocks by night, we're told in verse 8. And then as they're doing that, And you have to remember, I mean, this is a pretty uh, boring job, a pretty boring livelihood to be a shepherd, and it's especially boring at night. I mean, what do you do? Here they are, you know, the the flock's there, and it's dark, and so we all hunker down and we wait for the sun to come up. They have no iPods. They have no big-screen TVs. They've never seen a movie. They've never seen a television show. They've never even seen fireworks. I mean, this is... So you've got to understand the context in which this gigantic heavenly event is going to light up the whole sky and occur before them exactly kind of... Uh, they have no reference point for it. I mean, nothing even approaching it in their life experience. And so suddenly we're told in verse... Nine, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of his presence illuminated the entire area. And what was their response? (laughs) Terror. They were scared to death. And then the angel made the announcement uh, to them and calmed their fears, verse 10, by informing them that this was a night that is a cause for great joy for all people, And then in verse 11, he proceeded to tell them why. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then in verse 12, the angel told them where the child uh, could be found. And at that point in things, just as if this couldn't get any more of a wow factor for these shepherds, at that point in time, then a much larger angelic host that was accompanying the angel uh, either becomes uh, visible to them, but at the very least, it can no longer keep silent in the light of what this heavenly messenger has spoken. And so they burst out in praise to God for what he had done for mankind in sending this child. And that was Jesus' birth announcement. Now, when we have children, if you do, then our birth announcements are rather simple by comparison. We send a card uh, or we send a picture, something like that. This is heaven's birth announcement concerning the birth of the Messiah and uh, announced by way of a great shining angel. Now, they again, this didn't happen every day in, in, for these shepherds, and so they are left, as this whole scene is unfolded before them, they are left with a very distinct impression that 
whatever it is about this child being born into the world, that heaven is very, very excited about it. Whatever man's response to that birth may be, or the world's response to the birth may be, they understand heaven is very excited about this birth. And they really didn't have to guess why, because the angel of the Lord and the heavenly host told them three great monumental reasons as to why heaven was excited for the birth of Jesus. And number one, the birth of Jesus provides mankind with good news. And you notice that in verse 10. The angel said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Let me read it to you in a different translation. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will be that will bring great joy to all people so here is good news from god now that's got my attention because i need good news and the only news i seem to get today is bad news well, the world that i live in the country that i live in is we've been in a 4 or 5 year depression melancholy I mean, if the world today is, is, is in need of good news, as ever it was in need of good news, the problem is, is that the world is in the condition that it's in today because of man. So we can't look to man for good news. Man can't be the source or the origin of the kind of good news that people like you and I need and the condition that we're in. But thankfully, not just 2,000 years ago, but this morning, this message is as great and good news today as ever it was 2,000 years ago. And so as the world begins to wear on us, no good news from any quarter, wars, geopolitical instability, the economy in the dumps, and who knows what happens next. And not just internationally or nationally, but our own individual lives. Some of us can sit here this morning and there hasn't been any good news personally in our lives in so long. Maybe the loss of a loved one has been recent in our lives or some health kind of crisis has occurred, or some kind of bad news related to a job or related to finances or the loss of a friendship or a relationship. So we're in need personally, individually, of good news. It's good to realize this morning that there's always good news to be found with God and He always has good news for us. And God has good news for us this morning. And what is the good news? For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And the good news is that in the birth of Jesus, mankind, you and I, have been provided with a Savior. Now that's good news. But in order to appreciate the good news, I think that we need to understand the bad news first. And the bad news that makes the good news the good news that it is, is that each and every one of us in this world, the Bible declares, is a sinner. That's a, that's, that's a reality and an assessment that's being lost today. But the Bible declares you and I to be a sinner. Now, most people think that the word sin refers to some kind of extraordinary wrongdoing and that the term sinner refers to someone who is an extraordinary wrongdoer. Bank robbers are sinners. Axe murderers are sinners. But don't call me a sinner. But how God defines sin is important to understand. And to sin, very simply, is to be less than perfect. And our English word sin comes from a Greek word, hamartia, which means to miss the mark. 
And so our English word sin comes from an old English word that was used related to archers who would go out into a field. The great target would be placed in the distance and uh, a man would pull out his bow. He would take the arrow, aim as carefully as he could, and if he shot and hit the bullseye, then he didn't sin. Perfection. If he shot, even if he tried to hit the bullseye and didn't hit the bullseye, then he missed the mark. What's the mark? Perfection. And by missing the mark, he was called a sinner. That's the origin of our English word sinner. It means to miss the mark. And the Bible declares that every single one of us is a sinner. Romans declares, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans again, for it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. When we understand that the standard is perfection, then we realize, ah, yes, then if that is the definition of sin, then I am a sinner because I have been less than perfect all of my life. And it means to be less than perfect, not only in my actions, but in my speaking, what has come out of my mouth in my lifetime. It is to be less than perfect in my thoughts. It is to be less than perfect in my motives. It also includes to know to do good in a situation and then to fail to do that. That's to fall short of perfection. And that is sin. And so each of us has been less than perfect in our lives and so each of us is a sinner. Now, some people are put off at being called a sinner. And again, we tend to consider someone uh, who is a sinner to be someone who's like a notorious wrongdoer or at least someone who is a little bit worse than me. I'm always like a C-plus above the sinner category in my own mind. But that's the biblical definition of sin. It is to be less than perfect, to miss the mark, the mark being perfection. Now, the reason that that's important to understand, if you've never heard that before, the reason that's important for you to understand is you will never appreciate a Savior until you understand that you're a sinner. And the problem with how we deal with sin in this culture now, at this time in our history, is that increasingly what we do is we look at everyone else around us. We say, yes, I'm not perfect, but they're not perfect either. And so misery kind of likes company, and we kind of comfort ourselves in the fact that, well, since I'm not perfect and nobody else is perfect, then why in the world should we make a big deal out of sin? I mean, after all, what is God going to do? Is He going to judge all of us? Ooh, He might. He might. And judgment is what all of us are due because of our sin. So we tend to comfort ourselves in the fact that everybody is a sinner rather than recognizing that, no, that's not the message. The message is, is that sin is a very important and serious thing that needs to be dealt with related to our lives. And that sin is so serious that it required the birth and the death of Jesus, the very Son of God, in order to provide us with forgiveness. And so that's the bad news, that we are sinners. But the bad news is actually even worse than that. And, and, and the bad news gets worse when we come to realize that there are consequences to being a sinner. It isn't just the bad news is that I'm a sinner. There's consequences to being a sinner. Again, the Bible declares that the wages of sin is death. My sin deserves a righteous judgment, righteous punishment. Again, the book of Romans quoted it earlier, but we'll emphasize the second part of the verse, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and then here's the consequence, and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin has separated us from a relationship with God. And that's a problem because the single 
greatest thing that we have been created for is a relationship with God. And without being engaged in the single great thing that we've been created for, and that is that relationship with God, nothing else in life can truly make any sense and nothing else in life can provide fulfillment. We can only experience fulfillment when we're doing what we have been created to do, and that is to have a relationship with God. And that's why until a person enters into a relationship with God, there's always that nagging sense that there must be something more to life than what I have experienced. And the reason we feel that is because until we are in a relationship with God, there is something more to life than what we have experienced. And that's the great thing that we have been created for, that relationship. And Christmas is all about a Savior being born into the world in order to save us from our sin, to save us from the penalty of our sin, the death and the judgment that our sin deserves, to save us from the power of sin, the grip of sin, the control of sin in our lives, and then one day to save us from the very, very presence of sin. Most people know at least a few facts about the Christmas story. Most of us know a little something about the baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary and no room for the for them in the inn at Bethlehem. And we know something about the manger and something about the swaddling cloths and the shepherds. But I think while many, many people know one or two things about the physical aspects of Jesus' birth, they know nothing about the purpose of his birth. And to know about the physical specifics of his birth, like mangers and swaddling cloths and shepherds, but to fail to know the purpose of his birth is to miss everything. To know all about the physical specifics about his birth, but to fail to know the reasons for his birth is to know nothing about his birth at all. And so we talk about Jesus being the reason for the season. That's very good. But what is the reason for the reason for the season? That is the reason for the reason for the season. Is that clear? (laughs) And that reason is to provide us with a Savior, to save us from the penalty and the power and one day from the very presence of sin. Now, a person might ask themselves and say, what in the world kind of a life will this result in by me becoming a Christian? Will it result in some kind of a miserable experience? Absolutely not. And that heavenly host tells us that this Savior and this salvation is a cause, verse 10, for great joy. And then in verse 14, a source of great peace. And the joy It is to receive the joy and the peace of knowing that I am right with God. There is a joy and peace in knowing that I am right with God even if I'm not right with anyone else in the whole wide world. There's a depth of joy and peace in a person's heart that is priceless when I realize that I am right with God on the basis of this Savior. And then there's the joy and peace of knowing that heaven is going to be my portion forever and eternity, the peace and the joy of a personal relationship with God. Again, that single great thing that we've been created for. It is to have joy and peace, the joy and peace that comes with living a life of significance, of meaning, of purpose, that it isn't just he who... um, you know, eats the most pasta wins. There's some meaning and purpose behind the life that we're living. Jesus said, These things I've spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. 
He brings people into a life that is full of joy. He said further concerning peace, peace I leave with you, my peace. How peaceful is Jesus? Well, he's pretty peaceful. He said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And it's important to realize that peace and joy are not self-existent things. They don't uh, exist on their own. They cannot be sustained on their own. They are the byproduct of receiving God's Savior. Now, those are wonderful words when you talk about joy and you talk about peace. And they're wonderful words that represent a spiritual reality that will always remain elusive until I'm in that relationship with God. Peace and joy, true peace and joy, only comes in a relationship with God through His Savior. And I want you to notice once again the three great subjects that these that so excited these heavenly messengers. Verse 10, they spoke of great joy. Verse 11, a Savior. Verse 14, peace. Joy, Savior, peace. Joy, Savior, peace. Joy, Savior, peace. And then you fast forward the Christmas scene 2,000 years into our day. And we notice that man has done something very, very tragic to in editing heaven's very simple three-point commentary on the birth of a Savior of Jesus. And what man has done increasingly is that he has held on to two of the three things. He has held on to joy and he has held on to peace, but now he largely ignores that critical central theme of Savior. So you go to the Hallmark store or you go to a place to buy Christmas cards and you find no shortage of Christmas cards that speak of this time of the year as a time of joy. So you open up the card and it says something like, May joy fill your lives during this season and throughout the year. And then you notice there's no shortage of Christmas cards that speak of the theme of peace. May peace fill your lives during this holiday season and throughout the coming new year. And so Christmas has moved, moved largely from heaven's threefold theme of joy, Savior, peace to its own redefinition of joy and peace. And the problem with that is a big one. It is that the theme of Savior is central to joy and peace in this passage for a reason. Because it is always central to joy and peace in real life. Without a Savior, themes like joy and peace remain just that. They're just nice thoughts, nice themes, they're great ideals everything but what they are intended to be in a human life, and that is a reality in our lives. And it's only as we come to know the Savior, as we come to know Jesus, that we can come to know joy and peace in life. It's a package deal. And those are the three greatest gifts that a person can receive at Christmas time: A Savior and the joy and the peace that is found uniquely and only in Him. Finally, we close by noticing the shepherd's reaction to uh, this news of this birth of the Savior. And the reaction is an interesting one. We notice in verses 15 through 20 that, number one, they believe the message of the angels. And upon believing the message of the angels and then acting upon it, they discovered the message to be true. They believed and then they discovered the message to be true. What is your reaction to God's message to you this morning, to this birth announcement? 
And everyone has a reaction. Everyone in this room will have a reaction to the message of that heavenly host concerning the birth of that Savior. Everyone does something with that news. Everybody does something with God's offer of salvation. Well, what should one do? Just as the shepherds did, believe the message, believe the message, and then discover all of it to be true. Put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and then come to discover the joy and the peace that comes to a human life uniquely from God. God knowing that we need a Savior, but we also need joy in this world and we also need peace. And we need a source of joy and peace that is greater than all of the things that can rob us of joy and peace in this world. And only God can provide that kind of joy and that kind of peace. And we receive that by just simply putting our trust or our faith in Jesus as our personal Savior this morning. Jesus declared, it's the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. That God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's you again, believes in him or trusts in him for the forgiveness of sins, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, just stop for a moment and think about that. If that verse is true, if that offer is true, then who in their right mind would not receive that offer and that gift from God? The gift of the forgiveness of sins And the confidence of beginning a relationship with God today that God will then be faithful to, not only all the way through this life, but it will continue on all the way through the life to come, a life that is without end. And a person receives this Savior and all that is bound up in the Savior, all of the joy, all of the peace, by just simply coming to God in a place like this this morning and just saying, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. When I understand sin to be defined like that, I thought sin was, I thought sin being a, not being a sinner was just simply being a little bit better than my brother. But I see the standard's a little higher than that. No, I am a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I also believe, God, your revelation that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. God, I have looked for meaning and purpose in life, not even knowing I've been looking for meaning and purpose in life. I've gone from one hobby to the next hobby to the next hobby to the next interest to the next wife to the next wife to the next wife to the next husband to the next husband to the next husband to the next job to the next job to the next job to the next interest and the next interest and the next interest and it never occurred to me that I am on a search for the meaning and purpose of life. But now I realize what the meaning and the purpose of life is, and that is to have a relationship with you and to say to God, God, I believe that despite my sin, that you loved me so much that you sent your son into this world to die on the cross, to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sin and to honor and bless and respect you, I put my trust in the Savior that you've sent into the world this morning. And when you do that, the greatest miracle that can occur in a human life will occur, and that is the Holy Spirit himself will come 
into your life at your invitation to him this morning and you will be born again. Being born again is a spiritual birth and begin a relationship with God that will go on forever and ever and ever. And all of it's there just for the asking and just for the receiving. You know, this is a time for gifts. Christmas is known as a time for gifts. We know that no gift does us any good unless we open it, unless we receive it, and that's how we receive this gift of forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And so Christmas is all about God's gift to mankind of a Savior. And I love the excitement of heaven over the birth of this Savior. And I never, ever tire of telling this wonderful story of the birth of Christ, the account of it in the Scriptures. Because in a very real way, all of this is, it's personal with me. I know what it is to live life apart from God and all of the emptiness and frustration of it. To be on a search that you don't even know that you're on the search. And then I know what it is to know God. I know what it is to know peace and to know joy in an uninterrupted way because it has its source in God. When I was a boy, elementary school, I wouldn't become a Christian or hear the gospel or the true meaning of Christmas until several years later. But I remember Christmas being, uh, the day after Christmas being absolutely the worst day of the year. I, I considered Christmas to be a cruel exercise in our culture. I, okay, I might be a little melancholy, but I did. So here comes Christmas time. We have a little party at school. We'd make Santa Claus ornaments to bring home and put on the tree, and we'd had a little tree. It was a little Snoopy tree, Charlie Brown tree. We had a tree. And then we'd have dinner. wouldn't be anything elaborate, but it'd be a little bit more elaborate than what we ate each day. There were never any presents. It was just the way that it was, no kind of self-pity related to that. There just weren't any presents. So we'd have this meal sometime, you know, 3, 4 o'clock, and then the six of us would gather around a 13-inch black-and-white television and finish out the day. And I remember not even the day after Christmas... I didn't even have to wait till the next day. Be after that dinner, I would walk outside, and we had a vacant property, land next to our property, and I would go out there and I would just throw rocks against the incinerator where we burned our garbage back in those days. And I would just think to myself, what in the world was that all about? All of that build up all of these weeks and days and months to this, and that's all there is? I mean, again, it just seemed the cruelest thing that you could do in a culture. And then I began to realize that that's why you follow it up immediately with New Year's Day and then the bowl games, and then you've got... Uh, Valentine's Day, and then you're off and running again, forgetting about how empty this day is apart from Christ, and you launch into the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and the cycle is repeated all over again. But I remember it like a taste in my mouth how empty life was and Christmas was apart from understanding the true meaning of Christmas And that's why it's important to me that every person that comes into this room today understands the true meaning of Christmas. And to me, having known Christ and walked with the Lord for many, many years now, for decades now, what I felt as a young boy late Christmas Day and certainly the day after Christmas, that emptiness of all of that. To me, it was a microcosm of all of life lived apart from the Savior and the majesty and the beauty 
and the greatness of life that God has planned for us. Even if your life, humanly speaking, is as good as it can possibly be, humanly speaking, it does not compare to the life that God has planned for you and the relationship that he will develop between you and him. And so that's the true meaning of Christmas. God loves us. He knew we needed a Savior. And so he has provided us with one. And that Savior unfailingly becomes a great source of joy and peace in each of our lives. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for our Savior. Thank you for all that is bound up in him. Father, I think of the old song, Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. Holy Spirit, won't you teach us more about his holy name? Thank you, Jesus, for coming into this world, leaving the glory that you did to come into this world in such a humble way, to live such a glorious life, to die such a far-reaching death because of your love for each one of us in this room. Thank you, Lord, for bringing hope and meaning and purpose and forgiveness and salvation and joy and peace into a world that would know nothing of these things apart from that birth. We give you praise, not only with our lips, but with our hearts, Lord. Thank you for the life that is ours, Father, because of your Son. And I want to just ask as we continue for another moment here, if there's anyone here today you have never, ever trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and yet you say, today I understand 